Chapter One of Revolution and Counter Revolution, or Germany in eighteen forty eight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Revolution and Counter Revolution, or Germany in eighteen forty eight, by Karl Marx. Chapter One Germany at the Outbreak of the Revolution, October twenty five, eighteen fifty one. The first act of the revolutionary drama on the continent of Europe has closed the powers that were before the hurricane of eighteen forty eight are again the powers that be and the more or less popular rulers of a day provisional governors triumvirs dictators with their tale of representatives civil commissioners military commissioners prefects judges generals officers and soldiers are thrown upon foreign shores and transported beyond the seas to england or america there to form new governments in partibus infidelium european committees central committees national committees and to announce their advent with proclamations quite as solemn as those of any less imaginary potentates a more signal defeat than that undergone by the continental revolutionary party or rather parties upon all points of the line of battle cannot be imagined but what of that has not the struggle of the British middle classes for their social and political supremacy embraced forty-eight, that of the French middle classes forty years of unexampled struggles? And was their triumph ever nearer than at the very moment when restored monarchy thought itself more firmly settled than ever? The times of that superstition which attributed revolutions to the ill-will of a few agitators have long passed away. Everyone knows nowadays that wherever there is a revolutionary convulsion there must be some social want in the background which is prevented by outworn institutions from satisfying itself the want may not yet be felt as strongly as generally as might ensure immediate success but every attempt at forcible repression will only bring it forth stronger and stronger until it bursts its fetters if then we have been beaten we have nothing else to do but to begin again from the beginning unfortunately the probably very short interval of rest which is allowed us between the close of the first and the beginning of the second act of the movement gives us time for a very necessary piece of work the study of the causes that necessitated both the late outbreak and its defeat causes that are not to be sought for in the accidental efforts talents faults errors or treacheries of some of the leaders but in the general social state and conditions of existence of each of the convulsed nations that the sudden movements of february and march eighteen forty eight were not the work of single individuals but spontaneous irresistible manifestations of national wants and necessities more or less clearly understood but very distinctly felt by numerous classes in every country is a fact recognized everywhere but when you inquire into the causes of the counter-revolutionary successes, there you are met on every hand with the ready reply that it was Mr. This or Citizen That who quote-unquote betrayed the people. Which reply may be very true or not, according to circumstances, but under no circumstances does it explain anything, not even show how it came to pass that the people allowed themselves to be thus betrayed. And what a poor chance stands a political party whose entire stock in trade consists in a knowledge of the solitary fact that citizen so-and-so is not to be trusted the inquiry into and the exposition of the causes 
both of the revolutionary convulsion and its suppression are besides of paramount importance from a historical point of view all these petty personal quarrels and recriminations all these contradictory assertions that it was marast or le dru rollin or louis blanc or any other member of the provisional government or the whole of them that steered the revolution amidst the rocks upon which it foundered of what interest can they be what light can they afford to the american or englishman who observed all these various movements from a distance too great to allow of his distinguishing any of the details of operations no man in his senses will ever believe that eleven men mostly of very indifferent capacity either for good or evil were able in three months to ruin a nation of thirty-six millions unless those thirty-six millions saw as little of their way before them as the eleven did but how it came to pass that thirty-six millions were at once called upon to decide for themselves which way to go, although partly groping in dim twilight, and how then they got lost and their old leaders were for a moment allowed to return to their leadership, that is just the question. If then we try to lay before the readers of the Tribune the causes which, while they necessitated the German Revolution of 1848, led quite as inevitably to its momentary repression in eighteen forty nine and eighteen fifty we shall not be expected to give a complete history of events as they passed in that country later events and the judgment of coming generations will decide what portion of that confused mass of seemingly accidental incoherent and incongruous facts is to form a part of the world's history the time for such a task has not yet arrived we must confine ourselves to the limits of the possible and be satisfied if we can find rational causes based upon undeniable facts to explain the chief events the principal vicissitudes of that movement and to give us a clue as to the direction which the next and perhaps not very distant outbreak will impart to the german people and firstly what was the state of germany at the outbreak of the revolution the composition of the different classes of the people which form the groundwork of every political organization was in germany more complicated than in any other country while in england and france feudalism was entirely destroyed or at least reduced as in the former country to a few insignificant forms by a powerful and wealthy middle class concentrated in large towns and particularly in the capital the feudal nobility in germany had retained a great portion of their ancient privileges the feudal system of tenure was prevalent almost everywhere the lords of the land had even retained the jurisdiction over their tenants deprived of their political privileges of the right to control the princes they had preserved almost all their medieval supremacy over the peasantry of their demesnes, as well as their exemption from taxes feudalism was more flourishing in some localities than in others but nowhere except on the left bank of the rhine was it entirely destroyed this feudal nobility then extremely numerous and partly very wealthy was considered officially the first order in the country it furnished the higher government officials it almost exclusively officered the army the bourgeoisie of germany was by far not as wealthy and concentrated as that of france or england the ancient manufactures of Germany had been destroyed by the introduction of steam, and the rapidly extending supremacy of English manufactures, the more modern manufactures, started under the Napoleonic continental system, established in other parts of the country, did not compensate for the loss of the old ones, 
nor suffice to create a manufacturing interest strong enough to force its wants upon the notice of governments jealous of every extension of non-noble wealth and power if france carried her silk manufactures victorious through fifty years of revolutions and wars germany during the same time all but lost her ancient linen trade the manufacturing districts besides were few and far between situated far inland and using mostly foreign dutch or belgian ports for their imports and exports they had little or no interest in common with the large seaport towns on the north sea and the baltic they were above all unable to create large manufacturing and trading centres such as paris and lyons london and manchester the causes of this backwardness of german manufactures were manifold but two will suffice to account for it the unfavourable geographical situation of the country at a distance from the atlantic which had become the great highway for the world's trade and the continuous wars in which germany was involved and which were fought on her soil from the sixteenth century to the present day it was this want of numbers and particularly of anything like concentrated numbers which prevented the german middle classes from attaining that political supremacy which the english bourgeoisie has enjoyed ever since sixteen eighty eight and which the french conquered in seventeen eighty nine and yet ever since eighteen fifteen the wealth and with the wealth the political importance of the middle class in germany was continually growing governments were although reluctantly compelled to bow at least to its more immediate material interests it may even be truly said that from eighteen fifteen to eighteen thirty and from eighteen thirty two to eighteen forty every particle of political influence which having been allowed to the middle class in the constitutions of the smaller states was again wrested from them during the above two periods of political reaction that every such particle was compensated for by some more practical advantage allowed to them every political defeat of the middle class drew after it a victory on the field of commercial legislation and certainly the prussian protective tariff of eighteen eighteen and the formation of the zollverein were worth a good deal more to the traders and manufacturers of germany than the equivocal right of expressing in the chambers of some diminutive dukedom their want of confidence in ministers who laughed at their votes thus with growing wealth and extending trade the bourgeoisie soon arrived at a stage where it found the development of its most important interests checked by the political constitution of the country by its random division among thirty-six princes with conflicting tendencies and caprices by the feudal fetters upon agriculture and the trade connected with it by the prying superintendence to which an ignorant and presumptuous bureaucracy subjected all its transactions at the same time the extension and consolidation of the zollverein the general introduction of steam communication the growing competition in the home trade brought the commercial classes of the different states and provinces closer together equalized their interests and centralized their strength the natural consequence was the passing of the whole mass of them into the camp of the liberal opposition and the gaining of the first serious struggle of the german middle class for political power this change may be dated from eighteen forty from the moment when the bourgeoisie of prussia assumed the lead of the middle class movement of germany we shall hereafter revert to this liberal opposition movement of eighteen forty to eighteen forty seven the great mass of the nation which neither belonged to the nobility nor to the bourgeoisie consisted in the towns of the small trading and shopkeeping class and the working people and in the country of the peasantry 
the small trading and shopkeeping class is exceedingly numerous in germany in consequence of the stinted development which the large capitalists and manufacturers as a class have had in that country in the larger towns it forms almost the majority of the inhabitants in the smaller ones it entirely predominates from the absence of wealthier competitors or influence this class a most important one in every modern body politic and in all modern revolutions is still more important in germany where during the recent struggles it generally played the decisive part its intermediate position between the class of larger capitalists traders and manufacturers the bourgeoisie properly so called and the proletarian or industrial class determines its character aspiring to the position of the first the least adverse turn of fortune hurls the individuals of this class down into the ranks of the second in monarchical and feudal countries the custom of the court and aristocracy becomes necessary to its existence the loss of this custom might ruin a great part of it in the smaller towns a military garrison a county government a court of law with its followers form very often the base of its prosperity withdraw these and down go the shopkeepers the tailors the shoemakers the joiners thus eternally tossed about between the hope of entering the ranks of the wealthier class and the fear of being reduced to the state of proletarians or even paupers between the hope of promoting their interests by conquering a share in the direction of public affairs and the dread of rousing by ill-timed opposition the ire of a government which disposes of their very existence because it has the power of removing their best customers possessed of small means the insecurity of the possession of which is in the inverse ratio of the amount this class is extremely vacillating in its views humble and crouchingly submissive under a powerful feudal or monarchical government it turns to the side of liberalism when the middle class is in the ascendant it becomes seized with violent democratic fits as soon as the middle class has secured its own supremacy but falls back into the abject despondency of fear as soon as the class below itself the proletarians attempts an independent movement we shall by and by see this class in germany pass alternately from one of these stages to the other the working class in germany is in its social and political development as far behind that of england and france as the german bourgeoisie is behind the bourgeoisie of those countries like master like man the evolution of the conditions of existence for a numerous strong concentrated and intelligent proletarian class goes hand in hand with the development of the conditions of existence for a numerous wealthy concentrated and powerful middle class the working-class movement itself never is independent never is of an exclusively proletarian character until all the different factions of the middle class and particularly its most progressive faction the large manufacturers have conquered political power and remodelled the state according to their wants it is then that the inevitable conflict between the employer and the employed becomes imminent and cannot be adjourned any longer that the working class can no longer be put off with delusive hopes and promises never to be realised that the great problem of the nineteenth century the abolition of the proletariat is at last brought forward fairly and in its proper light now in germany the mass of the working class were employed not by those modern manufacturing lords of which great britain furnishes such splendid specimens but by small tradesmen whose entire manufacturing system is a mere relic of the middle ages 
and as there is an enormous difference between the great cotton lord and the petty cobbler or master tailor so there is a corresponding distance from the wide-awake factory operative of modern manufacturing babylons to the bashful journeyman tailor or cabinet-maker of a small country town who lives in circumstances and works after a plan very little different from those of the like sort of men some five hundred years ago this general absence of modern conditions of life of modern modes of industrial production of course was accompanied by a pretty equally general absence of modern ideas and it is therefore not to be wondered at if at the outbreak of the revolution a large part of the working classes should cry out for the immediate re-establishment of guilds and medieval privileged trades corporations yet from the manufacturing districts where the modern system of production predominated and in consequence of the facilities of intercommunication and mental development afforded by the migratory life of a large number of the working men a strong nucleus formed itself whose ideas about the emancipation of their class were far clearer and more in accordance with existing facts and historical necessities but they were a mere minority if the active movement of the middle class may be dated from eighteen forty that of the working class commences its advent by the insurrections of the silesian and bohemian factory operatives in eighteen forty eight and we shall soon have occasion to pass in review the different stages through which this movement passed lastly there was the great class of the small farmers the peasantry which with its appendix of farm labourers constitutes a considerable majority of the entire nation but this class again subdivided itself into different fractions there were firstly the more wealthy farmers what is called in germany gross and mittelbauern proprietors of more or less extensive farms and each of them commanding the services of several agricultural labourers this class placed between the large untaxed feudal landowners and the smaller peasantry and farm labourers for obvious reasons found in an alliance with the anti-feudal middle class of the towns its most natural political course then there were secondly the small freeholders predominating in the rhine country where feudalism had succumbed before the mighty strokes of the great french revolution similar independent small freeholders also existed here and there in other provinces where they had succeeded in buying off the feudal charges formerly due upon their lands this class however was a class of freeholders by name only their property being generally mortgaged to such an extent and under such onerous conditions that not the peasant but the usurer who had advanced the money was the real landowner thirdly the feudal tenants who could not be easily turned out of their holdings but who had to pay a perpetual rent or to perform in perpetuity a certain amount of labour in favour of the lord of the manor lastly the agricultural labourers whose condition in many large farming concerns was exactly that of the same class in england and who in all cases lived and died poor ill-fed and the slaves of their employers these three latter classes of the agricultural population the small freeholders the feudal tenants and the agricultural labourers never troubled their heads much about politics before the revolution but it is evident that this event must have opened to them a new career full of brilliant prospects to every one of them the revolution offered advantages and the movement once fairly engaged in it was to be expected that each in their turn would join it but at the same time it is quite as evident and equally borne out by the history of all modern countries 
that the agricultural population in consequence of its dispersion over a great space and of the difficulty of bringing about an agreement among any considerable portion of it never can attempt a successful independent movement they require the initiatory impulse of the more concentrated more enlightened more easily moved people of the towns the preceding short sketch of the most important of the classes which in their aggregate formed the german nation at the outbreak of the recent movements will already be sufficient to explain a great part of the incoherence incongruence and apparent contradiction which prevailed in that movement when interests so varied so conflicting so strangely crossing each other are brought into violent collision when these contending interests in every district every province are mixed in different proportions when above all there is no great centre in the country no london no paris the decisions of which by their weight may supersede the necessity of fighting out the same quarrel over and over again in every single locality what else is to be expected but that the contest will dissolve itself into a mass of unconnected struggles in which an enormous quantity of blood energy and capital is spent but which for all that remain without any decisive results the political dismemberment of germany into three dozen of more or less important principalities is equally explained by this confusion and multiplicity of the elements which compose the nation and which again vary in every locality where there are no common interests there can be no unity of purpose much less of action the german confederation it is true was declared everlastingly indissoluble yet the confederation and its organ the diet never represented german unity the very highest pitch to which centralization was ever carried in germany was the establishment of the zollverein by this the states on the north sea were also forced into a customs union of their own austria remaining wrapped up in her separate prohibitive tariff germany had the satisfaction to be for all practical purposes divided between three independent powers only instead of between thirty-six of course the paramount supremacy of the russian tsar as established in eighteen fourteen underwent no change on this account having drawn these preliminary conclusions from our premises we shall see in our next how the aforesaid various classes of the german people were set into movement one after the other and what character the movement assumed on the outbreak of the french revolution of eighteen forty eight london september eighteen fifty one End of chapter 1